Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning, my name is Dina, and today's scripture reading is from Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Can they bring these burnt stones back from life to life from the mounds of the rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, indeed, Even if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads. Let them be taken as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight, because they have angered the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had the will to keep working. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, uh, let's exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. morning. How are you? Good. Good. Great. I, uh, I love those songs that we just sung. Um, so thank you, Tori. Thank you, the music team, for, for leading us in, in worship through singing and worship through music. Um, if you haven't already, take your copy of the Holy Scriptures and turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. What we're going to do today is we're actually going to zoom out a little bit. Um, we're about halfway done through, uh, sorry, we're over halfway done through our series on Ezra and Nehemiah. We only have about a month and a half left. So I figured today would, would be a good reason to remind ourselves why, what, what is Ezra and Nehemiah about? Why are we going through Ezra and Nehemiah? Um, why are we focusing so much on temple, on worship practices, on rebuilding of walls, on these ancient kings and these ancient, you know, lists of a bunch of gates being rebuilt and a bunch of names of people. Um, because sermons aren't, what we've been doing is we've been going chapter by chapter, and um, this is that's good, but sermons aren't merely just supposed to be an intellectual exercise. Like, this isn't a class on Ezra Nehemiah. Sermons, they're supposed to be an element of that, right? Like, if uh, um, the goal of it is so that we can be renewed in our knowledge after the image of its creator. But sermons are supposed to encourage uplift, remind, uh, tell again, display God's goodness in Christ and the richness and abundance of his glorious grace and mercy. I had a professor in seminary once said that the preacher's job is not to be creative. It was just to say the same thing over and over and over and over again. And that was kind of defeating for me because I was like, really? Like, can't we be a little creative? But his point was, every week we come back here to remind ourselves of who God is and who we are. We are to remind ourselves of this story, that you and I are, are made, are created in the image of the triune God, and that you are more intimately known 
by God than anybody else and than you can even fathom. And you are more intimately loved by him than you can possibly think or imagine. And it was, it was God's first love that was expressed to us in this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And our response is a secondary love where we now love God and we love others because of that. Because he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And this invitation to this life, to this reality, to the only true reality in the world, by the way. This is the only thing that's real in the world is that Jesus is Lord. This invitation is there every single day for everybody. And if, you, if, you, if you've been, for those of us who've been following Jesus for some time now, the invitation isn't a one and done. Yes, there was a moment where you were bought with the blood of the lamb and you recognize Christ's lordship in your life and the spirit of, of life enters in you and you are now a, a, a new a person, you are now a Christian, but also there is an invitation every single day to trust again. There is an invitation for us, even if we've been walking the Lord for some time now, there is an invitation every single day to follow again, to have salvation fresh to you again, to look again to Jesus, to seek his face again, to persevere again. And when you hear, trust, and obey that invitation, you are now a completely different person. Paul says you're actually a new human. You were just a walking dead person before, but now you are completely made new and alive. You now have a love that keeps no record of wrong and it rather considers the needs of others as more important than the needs of the self. You now have, we now have, we now have a joy that can, can't ebb and flow like seasons, but one that is steadfast and recognizes the beauty and grace and mercy of our Lord. We now have a peace that surpasses all understanding. We have a patience and endurance, a quiet stability in the midst of a world that is not stable. And we now have a hope that is knowledge-based, not just optimistic-based, that Jesus will return. This is what it means to be a new Christian. This is what it means to be a new person, to be a Christian. This is the hope that we are called to. This is my job every single week to just say this over and over again. I love it so much. Now, the question is, how does Nehemiah get us to that truth? How do we have this beautiful theology of who we are in Christ, of who God is and his love for us, and how when we respond to the gospel, we are now bought with the blood of the lamb and our sins are forgiven? How do we get there from Ezra and Nehemiah? Because Jesus says that all of the scriptures are about him, which means all of the scriptures are about him, and that includes Ezra and Nehemiah. Paul says that all, it was according to the scriptures, Ezra and Nehemiah included, that a Messiah figure would come he would uh, uh, live, he would die, he would be crucified, and he would be raised from the dead. All of that happens according to the scriptures. He also says, Paul later says that um, the scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes I wonder what Bible Jesus and Paul were reading, because sometimes I read the, the, the Old Testament, and I'm like, how did, you get, how did you get that from there? And I think sometimes, the reason we're going to back up today in Ezra and Nehemiah, because I think sometimes, while it's good that we're doing this and we're going to keep going through Ezra and Nehemiah, we need to remind ourselves, how do we get from Ezra and Nehemiah to Jesus? And in order to answer that question, we have to back up again. So, like I said, we started this series with an overview of the whole book, Ezra and Nehemiah, what, it, what its purpose is, the the flow of the narrative, the story, the characters, all that stuff, how it points to Jesus. But I want to take a minute and I want to, I want to do that again. But before we do that, we're going, to, we're going to look at Nehemiah 4, which is our text for today. Then we're going to slowly back out in kind of like concentric circles and then um, see how 
Ezra Nehemiah is about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So before we do that, we know that the best teacher of, of God's word is God himself. So I want to go to him in prayer and ask him to teach us this morning before we dive into Nehemiah 4. Father, we are so grateful that um, uh, you did not spare your own son. We're so grateful that you, you start everything. You originate everything. And it's your love, your first love for us that, that we respond to. Father, it's in, in your son, Christ, that we, we, we look to him. So I, I pray, Father, as Tom just prayed earlier, that there are, there are so many, every person in here has a different story, a different past, a different week that just happened, a different circumstance, different stresses, different anxieties, different task lists. And I pray right now that you would remind us that we are seeking your face. You would remind us of your glory. You would remind us of your power. You would remind us of your presence. Father, I pray this not just for us. I pray this for the other churches that we know and love here in Ankeny, for Keystone, for First Family, for Cornerstone. I pray for other churches in the Des Moines metro area that are meeting. And then beyond that, Lord, I pray for the thousands of Christians, maybe even millions and millions of Christians that are meeting right now, glorifying you, praising your name. And God, I cannot wait till we are all together singing your praises, looking to you, remembering that the former things will pass away. But your love and your word endures forever. Give us a hope, God. Hear our prayers, we ask. Teach us, we pray, from Nehemiah and uh, from your word. We pray all these things in, in your son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Nehemiah 4. Nehemiah has uh, returned to Jerusalem. He had an a, a edict from King Artaxerxes. He had a letter in his hand. He went back to Jerusalem. He starts rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Well, chapter 4, we hear this guy Sanballat, which you guys might remember last week, uh, we, taught, we heard a mention of Sanballat, and he was kind of frustrated. So Sanballat enters the scene, and uh, he really starts to put the opposition on, on Nehemiah. Uh, he really starts to fight back against Nehemiah. So let's look at uh, Nehemiah 4, verse 1. Verse 1 and 2. Nehemiah 4, verse 1 and 2. When Sanballat, which by the way, great name, you know, in case you want to call your friends something or you have a kid on the way, you want to name him Sanballat, do that. When Sanballat heard that uh, they, or that we, sorry, this is Nehemiah and all his uh, friends, were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews, verse 2. He mocked them before his colleagues. He mocked them before the powerful men of Samaria. And he said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? In summary, Sanballat is angry. Reminder, Sanballat is a governor of a region just north of Jerusalem. So right now there's no authority in Jerusalem. Like they can just be taxed. They are just um, a weak like nobody. And so if, if leadership gets back to Jerusalem, i.e. if Nehemiah gets there, if they get their, temp or their walls rebuilt, they're kind of a threat now because they're like neighboring. Um, uh, so, so Sanballat does not want this to happen. And so he 
gets his cronies around, and he just starts hurling insults at these people. I find it interesting. He can't actually, like, threaten them, threaten them, because Nehemiah has a letter from the king, right? So if Sanballat, like, tries to actually kill him, which he kind of does later, but if he tries to actually kill him, then Artaxerxes is just going to be like, hey, you can't do that. I said so, and uh, he's going to be wiped out. So he gets an audience. He asks a bunch of questions, and then this is another really funny verse. Look at verse 3. Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. When I first read this, I thought of like a movie scene where there's like a bully in like a playground or something. And there's like, you never, there's like, there's like a main bully. And then he always has like his crony right behind him. And, uh, and then every once in a while, that guy will pop out from behind and be like, yeah, take that. I feel like Tobiah is that to Sanballat. Sanballat's like, he's like, uh, like hurling all these insults and he actually is the one that, that gathers later. He gathers a bunch of other em- enemies around and then Tobiah just comes around and he's like, yeah, if a fox climbed up it, it would fall over. And then like that's all we hear from, from uh, Tobiah. Maybe that's just me, but I thought that was pretty funny. Um, the, the implication being uh, if a fox climbed up it, it will fall over. They're using old stones. So, they're using the stones from the first wall that was destroyed, you know, years ago. So it's, they're really not actually that stable. So the point is, is that they're trying to, Tobiah and Sanballat are trying to instill fear into the uh, Israelites. They're trying to make them think that their efforts are in vain and they will not be able to fulfill what God has called them to. That's basically what they're doing. Now we're going to look at Nehemiah's response in verse 4. Nehemiah's response, listen our God for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Nehemiah hears hears these accusations, these threats, and his first response is prayer. Listen, our God, for we are despised. Then he says, I hope that they're taken uh, as plunder to a land of captivity. Where did Nehemiah just come from? Captivity. Israel has been in captivity for years, centuries at this point. So Nehemiah is actually praying that what just happened to the Israelites will happen to the enemies of the Israelites. He keeps going, verse five. Do not cover their guilt. This is Nehemiah praying to the Lord. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. This is intense, It sounds like Nehemiah just asked that God would not forgive their sins. Don't cover their sins. Don't don't forgive them. This is what um, theologians and Christians call imprecatory prayers. Uh, To imprecate, to imprecate is to call down a curse or evil upon somebody. So an imprecatory prayer is a prayer that calls down evil and curses on somebody. There's a few psalms like this. They're called imprecatory psalms, where the psalmist, probably David, will, will talk about his enemies in such a way that it do, he doesn't want them to do well. He wants them to die at times. He wants them to not be forgiven. So this is a, this is a, a big tension. This actually has caused a lot of controversy in, in Christian texts and Christian circles. Um, and there's a large rabbit hole we could go down with imprecatory psalms and prayers, but I'll summarize it in two different Uh, ways. Um, First, the reason kind of for imprecatory imprecatory psalms and prayers is that when an individual in this time, in this 
world view and this culture. When an individual is threatened, it's actually not just the individual that is threatened. It's also their God that is threatened. Because you were, you were a part of your community and your community had your God. And so when somebody was threatened, their God was also threatened. So Nehemiah is threatened, right? And he takes it as what? He's like, this isn't just a threat to me as a person. This is a threat to Yahweh, God. And so that, that causes this, this, um, uh, this posture of imprecation, if you will. This like, hey, you're not just threatening me, you're, you're threatening God. And this isn't my honor and name that's just at stake here. This is God's honor and name and reputation that's at stake here. And that kind of leads to the Psalms and prayers of, um, of impre- imprecation, imprecatory Psalms and prayers. The second thing is that um, Nehemiah is a what? Nehemiah is a human the authors of the Psalms are humans, right? Humans have emotional reactions to things. And the stronger a person has an emotional, the stronger the emotional reaction to something, the more passionate they are about that thing, right? This is, this is um, common today. If I walked up to somebody on the side of the road and I said, hey, your handwriting is not good, they probably would be like, okay, like, they're not passionate, unless they're into calligraphy, they're not passionate about handwriting. So they would probably be like, okay, I, I don't have an emotional response to that because I'm not passionate about that. Now, if I went up to somebody on the side of the road and I started uh, making fun of or threatening their, like, family and their friends, like, oh, man, you're going to have an emotional response. Why? Because you're more passionate about that. Which means what? Nehemiah has this emotional response to these people. He literally is praying that they will be taken into pl- plunder and captivity. He's praying that the Lord will not forgive their sins. Why? That shows an emotional response, which is a good thing, but there's a little bit of a tension there because he is so passionate about what he is doing. He knows that Jerusalem is the city where God's name dwells. He knows that God's presence was manifested there. He knows that Jerusalem is supposed to be, Jerusalem's original blueprint design was supposed to be a heaven on earth. The first time the temple was there, the first time the city was there, the presence of God came down and a cloud, it shook the temple foundations. He knows that Jerusalem is supposed to be a city on a hill, is supposed to be a light to the nations. Jerusalem is supposed to be the city where all of the nations will gather. They will ascend up the mountain of the Lord. They will worship the Lord in fear and reverence and rejoicing and trembling because they know that actually it's the God, Yahweh God, who's the God above all gods, who's the king of all kings, and his kingdom has no end. That's the original design for Jerusalem. It didn't work the first time, so they went into exile. So now Nehemiah has this opportunity called by God to partially bring this back together. So if you're Nehemiah, you have this in the background of your head, like this could be it. Like we have the opportunity to make Jerusalem God's presence again. And so if you get threatened or mocked, or somebody gets in the way, no wonder you're going to have an emotional response like that. No wonder you're not just going to take it as a threat against you, but you're going to take it as a threat against God. And it needs to be done away with. So, that's a little bit about verse 4 and 5. Let's keep going. Verse 6. So we rebuilt uh, the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working. And then I'm gonna summarize the rest of Nehemiah chapter four um, and then we're gonna look at the very last verse. But I'm gonna summarize the rest of Nehemiah chapter four. So they build the wall up to half its height which means that it's halfway done, not completely done. 
Sanballat now not just brings Tobiah, he actually gathers all of the surrounding uh, regions of, uh, that surround Jerusalem. He gathers all of the, the governors and the leaders of the surrounding areas, and he says, this is not good. Let's get together, and let's attack them, and let's stop them. Nehemiah hears about this, and so he does a few things. First, he prays. Nehemiah's first response is always prayer. Then he puts a, a few soldiers and guards along the wall. So he puts uh, watchmen and guards with soldiers, with bows, with spears. And then uh, he also gives the builders, he gives everybody, he gives the people who are rebuilding the wall, he gives them a sword on their uh, side. And then with the builders, so there's two types of builders. There's builders who are actually building the wall. And then there's transporters, they, call them, like, they were called transporters, where they would take supplies. And it was literally just like a bucket type thing. They would take supplies to the people. Nehemiah's idea was, okay, well, the builders who are actually building, they need both their hands, so we'll put the sword on their side. So that's what he did. But the guys who carry the buckets and all that stuff, they have a hand that's free. So let's put a sword in their hand and have them carry the bucket in the other hand. So literally you have these guys that are like, they have a sword in one hand and they're carrying a bucket in the other and they're doing this. And, and so he's taking action. He's not just, you know, like, oh, I wonder what's gonna happen, twiddling his thumbs. He's a man of action. Um, so he's, uh, he prays, he puts up defense um, mechanisms with guards and swords, and then he encourages the people to hope in the Lord. He reminds the people, this is in uh, verse 14, he reminds the people to remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord. This is the same phrase that Joshua used when he was entering into the promised land. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord, the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the Lord who performs signs and wonders for you. Remember him and then fight and, and be strong and be strengthened. And then the last verse in the chapter, let's actually look at this um, together. Again, a very interesting verse. Chapter four, verse 23. This is Nehemiah after he did all of these things. Um, he said, and I, my brothers, my servants, and the men of the guard with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon even when washing. The point of this is that Nehemiah practiced what he preached. He told his people, be ready, fight, like uh, uh, be ready basically in season and out of season. And in fact, I'm not, I'm not just like above this and not gonna do it myself. I'm also not going to, I mean, he literally didn't change his clothes and he, was, he had his uh, sword in his hand even when he was washing. So the, the point of that was just to say that Nehemiah practiced what he preaches. So that's chapter four in a nutshell. Now we're gonna back up a little bit. Chapter four, in a word, can be described as the word opposition, opposition. Because the building is happening, right? And then you have these guys, Sanballat and the other guys that are in opposition to uh, the building. And so they have to try to figure out how to resolve this opposition. There was a group of people that Nehemiah led to Jerusalem. They started rebuilding and they experienced opposition. Have we heard this rhythm before, a group of people that return to Jerusalem that immediately experience opposition. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's the third time we are actually seeing this pattern of return, rebuild, and opposition. And if you're, there's gonna be a chart here on the, the screen that kind of talks about the three different uh, acts, the three different moves. And if, if you're sick of this, that, that's, that's great. Uh, act one, Ezra chapters one through six, starts off with a decree from a king. It's um, King Cyrus. He says, Zerubbabel, go back and rebuild. So there's this return of exiles. 
the land. They start rebuilding. And what happens when they start rebuilding? There's opposition. The people don't like it. They started rebuilding the temple of God. And then there's this kind of resolution, but actually the resolution wasn't fully resolved. Act two, there's a decree from a king. Uh, This time it is uh, Darius. He talks to Ezra. He says, Ezra, go back and rebuild the worship practices. So there's this return of a bunch of more exiles. They start rebuilding the worship practices, and then there is immediately opposition. But this time it was internal opposition. It was the marrying of foreign wives. It was the sin of the people. And then a attempted resolution. Third act, Nehemiah 1 through 7, there is a decree from a king, Artaxerxes, says to Nehemiah, his own cupbearer, go back, rebuild. There's a return to the land. They start rebuilding. And then what did we just say Nehemiah chapter 4 was? Nehemiah chapter 4 is opposition. Now, why does this matter? Why is this just here so that we can learn more about the literary structure of Ezra and Nehemiah? No, although it's really cool, I think. Come on, right? Uh, why does this matter? Because how did Ezra and Nehemiah start? Ezra and Nehemiah started in Ezra chapter one, verse one. It's gonna be up on the screen too. It started by saying that Ezra and Nehemiah is a fulfillment of the word of the Lord. Ezra 1.1 says, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, i.e., the rest of the story you're about to read is a fulfillment of prophecy. So now we're asking, well, what did Jeremiah prophesy that Ezra 1.1 says, hey, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. So now we're backing up even, even more now. What did Jeremiah prophesy? Jeremiah prophesied that exile would not last forever. Exile in Babylon would be a certain amount of years, and then it would not last forever. This is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Ezra prof- or, uh, Jeremiah prophesied sorry, that there will be a day when the people will return to the land. Jeremiah prophesied that their yoke would eventually be broken. The burden that they were wearing from slavery would eventually be broken. Jeremiah prophesied that they will return to Jerusalem and they will worship the Lord there. Jeremiah prophesied that a righteous branch a righteous uh, stem from the branch of, of David, of Jesse, will grow up and he will be a king like David. Jeremiah prophesied that that king will rule the people in love, in justice, in mercy. Jeremiah prophesied that the spirit of the Lord will rest on the people and they will be God's people and God will be with them. Jeremiah prophesied that the word of God would not be written on external tablets, but it would rather be written on the heart. Jeremiah prophesied that all of the enemies of the Lord will be crushed and that every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow before the Lord in his holy place. That's what Jeremiah prophesied and a lot more. So you get to Ezra 1.1 and you hear, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, and you're thinking, well, this story should be a fulfillment to that prophecy. And then we read Act 1. And you see that this foreign king stirs up the people and there's a return. Is this going to be when the new covenant is brought about? They're building the temple now. Is this going to be when the presence of God finally dwells with his people again? Then there's opposition. There's a little bit of confusion. They rebuild the temple. They finally finish rebuilding the temple. But if you remember, the temple didn't fill with smoke and its foundations weren't shook like the first time it happened. 
So it was, it was a partial fulfillment. They returned back to the land and they rebuilt the temple, but it wasn't an ultimate fulfillment. So that's why they needed act two. Another decree from a foreign king, another leader, Ezra, coming back and he's rebuilding the, the word of the Lord. It said that Ezra taught everybody what the word of the Lord meant. Is this the prophecy fulfilled where the word of the Lord was finally written on their hearts? Well, no, because the opposition is that there's still sin. And all of Ezra chapter nine and 10 is this kind of uncomfortable res- trying to find a resolution to this sin. So it was a partial fulfillment in that the word of the Lord and the sacrificial system, it was all rebuilt again, but it wasn't an ultimate fulfillment because that's why there's another act three. Maybe this will get it. And we have a decree from a foreign king and we have Nehemiah heading back, returning, building the city, the walls, the houses. Is this, is this it? Is this going to be the fulfillment? Is this going to be the city on a hill that's a light to the nations that all of the t- uh, tribes, tongues, languages, all, everybody will come and worship before the Lord? Well, there's opposition, and it's uncomfortable, and we're going to see here in a few weeks how it is resolved. And at the end of Nehemiah, there's 400 years of silence. Did it work? Yes, it's a partial fulfillment. The people got back to the land. Yes, they rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the community around their worship practices. Yes, they rebuilt the wall. Yes, there were these, these awesome leaders of the line of David, but, but 400 years of nothing. And then, the light of the world broke, broke into the darkness. And what does the scripture say about who Jesus is? It says that he dwelt among us. He was the temple of God. What Act 1 tried to rebuild, the temple, it says Jesus was the temple. He is the presence of God. What else does it say about who Jesus is? It says that Jesus is the word of God. What did Act 2 tried to rebuild? The Torah, the word, the community. They failed. What did Jeremiah prophesy? That the word would eventually be written on their hearts. It says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That is who Jesus is. Jesus is the word incarnate. And when he ascended into heaven, who did he send for us now? His spirit. And now what? The prophecy of Jeremiah wasn't fulfilled in Ezra and Nehemiah. It is fulfilled in Jesus and now in us because we don't have to look to some tablets to see the word of God. We actually have the word of God written on our hearts today. Jesus is the fulfillment of Act 2 in Ezra and Nehemiah. Act 3, the city. What about it? What does the scripture say that, what does Jesus say in the book of John, in the gospel according to John? He says that you actually don't have to go to a mountain anymore to worship. You can now worship in spirit and in truth. Paul says that our citizenship is not in a a city or a building or a country or anything. Our citizenship is in heaven. And who who is reigning in heaven? Christ. Who is reigning on earth? Christ. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Act 3 in Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah is basically this giant sign that says, keep looking. This didn't work. 
And so we're reading this and we're seeing the sovereignty of God and we see these, this beautiful like tension between like things are happening that the Lord wants to happen and things are happening that God is, is putting his hand on, but also not yet. It, it's, it's not, that they were living in an already not yet. They, already, they were already there. They had the temple, they had the word, they had the city, but there was not yet a new covenant. Their hearts were still astray. They did not have the spirit of the Lord guiding them, moving them, uh, uh, leading them. And they did not have Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. And it's more than just a prophecy fulfillment. There are actually no prophecies in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah like direct, like, and then in this year he will, he will be born. There's no, no prophecies like that. But the, the whole text of Ezra and Nehemiah with the opposition, with the uh, rebuilding, with the characters, everything, everything is pointing to Jesus. And I hope, I hope that this uh, truth this observation would make the person of Jesus, the triune, God became flesh, just beautiful. Because it took, I mean, thousands of people in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah to try to bring this about. It took decades to try to bring about the new covenant, the new work of God, and yet in Jesus, it was one man. He said he was the temple, and he would rebuild it. And Ezra and Nehemiah kind of rebuilt it, but he would rebuild it in three days. So the question then is, Jesus is clearly the fulfillment of Ezra and Nehemiah. Is Jesus the fulfillment in your life? Does your life say, I am his? Does your life, say, does your life like Ezra and Nehemiah, actually point to Jesus? Because we, we no longer have to go to a mountain to worship. We no longer have to be a, a specific uh, tribe or tongue or, or race or ethnicity. We now can worship in spirit and in truth because the son of God gave his life for you and me. That veil was torn. The dividing wall of hostility was torn. And when he ascended, he sent us his spirit so that right now we still live in an already not yet. We still struggle. We still sin. We still don't have, we have a partial fulfillment, but we, we don't have yet a complete fulfillment. The complete fulfillment is when one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, sin will just sin and death will be a memory. Decay, disease, pain—that will be a memory. And in Christ, we will we will be worshiping. We will be living our to our fullest potential with God, with Christ, walking with Him, talking with Him. And we're not there yet. But we have the spirit inside us, the word inside us, because Jesus himself, he gave us himself so that we can live for him. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all these texts. All of history centers around Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. Is Jesus the fulfillment of your life? And so I actually wanna, I wanna take a minute before we do communion and just sit and 
reflect. Maybe you want to sit and you, want to, you actually want to physically open your hands as a posture of, I, I want to receive. I want to receive Jesus. I want to receive the Holy Spirit. Maybe there are areas in your life where you, where you, you, can say, or you say, actually, Jesus is not the fulfillment of my life. And it's in this area or this sin struggle, or this relationship, or something that I'm actually holding on to because I think I can bring about the fulfillment of my life other than without Jesus. Maybe it's remembering again. Maybe it's sitting there and asking the Spirit to bring to mind something or someone where you need to, you need to, you need to say, is he the fulfillment in your life? Maybe it's just praise. Jesus is beautiful. One of the reasons I love the Old Testament is because it just makes Jesus so beautiful. So whatever it is, I want, to, I want to invite the Holy Spirit right now to come to you. And, and as you pray, as you reflect, as you read, I'm going to give us a minute or two of silence. And then um, we're going to partake of the elements of communion together. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.